Good morning. Good morning to you all here in the auditorium. Good morning to everyone watching online at carneyfree.com and those over in the venue as well. We welcome you and grateful to be together as a church family in these three different places enjoying our good God together this morning. It's ugly outside, but it's beautiful in here, ain't it? It's great to be together for worship. We're so thankful, though, that we can. Um, we are in this new series, The Good Life, and we'll enter into that in just a moment. But in case you didn't know, we're nine days away from an election. Did you know that? Yeah. So you, you knew that, I think. And uh, one of the questions that I get a lot around this time of year, every couple years, is uh, how should I vote? And I think what people are asking in that sometimes is, who should I vote for? To which I want to say, you know, that's, that's none of my business, though. That's between you and God, and that's how you do your research, and you figure that out on your own. But I do think that's a really, really good question. How should we vote? And I want to take just five minutes here, though, this morning to speak on five very simple principles that at least inform me as I go to the voting booth or do mail-in ballot or whatever you're doing though this year, uh, five simple principles, and then we want to pray together, and then we'll enter into our message series, The Good Life. So um, here's the first and the most important one. Y you pray, and then you vote, <laughs> because it's a privilege, right? Can we agree with that? Voting is a privilege that many people around the world do not get. And if you know your American history at all, you know many people in America haven't had this privilege at different times in our history. But we as American citizens get this wonderful privilege, and it's a tremendous one that most people around the world would love to have, and we are grateful to have it. It's an honor. It's a privilege. And to take part in our American governmental system is really kind of unique around the world. There are some countries that have that, but many don't, and we have this great blessing to take part in our republic, and we should. We should pray, and then we should vote. There are many Christians who today are praying and fasting across America for this coming election. I'm in that group. I'm praying and fasting as well today, asking for God's guidance, God's leadership on our country praying for God's wisdom, asking for civility, asking for goodness to prevail and for evil to be diminished, asking for another awakening in our country, amen? Well, we, I mean, we truly need another awakening in our country. And the way that begins is by repentance in us. It begins in the family of God, in the church, repenting, turning to God more and more and saying, God, I want more of your will in my life and then to be salt and light more and more in our communities. And so uh, you might pray for that today and in these nine, next nine days. And there's many leaders across the country who are praying and fasting for that uh, revival and repentance and for justice and righteousness to prevail even now as well. Second, bring the gospel into the voting booth, even as you understand that nobody perfectly represents the gospel. We all know that, right? Nobody perfectly represents the gospel, but our responsibility is to be informed the best we're able to and to say who can best reflect biblical values and character and positions and then to make different difficult decisions up and down both national and local initiatives and positions. And there's no perfection in any of that, but we make our very best decision based on 
this decision to bring the gospel into the voting booth. Our faith intersects with all of life, including this area of life. Third, pray for whoever wins. Would you commit to that? Thank you. Would you commit to that? Like seriously. I, I pray every day, for, excuse me, I pray every week for our president. Every week. And I prayed every week for our previous president. And I pray for our mayor and our city council and for our governor and for all of those positions. Because the Bible commands me to pray for those in positions of authority. We just went through uh, the pressure cooker with First Peter. First Peter 2, you can go back and look at that again. Peter commands prayers for Nero, who was way worse than anyone will get. Okay? We pray for whoever is in positions of authority as God would command us to do. Number four, ground yourself in true gospel identity, not in any party and not in any candidate. Our true gospel identity is that we are followers of Christ, beloved children of God, and out of that we seek to live our lives 100% for God's will. And we may identify at times with certain parties or certain candidates, but we don't identify with them as saviors, amen? They are not our saviors. Only Jesus is our savior, and he fortunately remains on the throne no matter what happens here in nine days. Fifth, love and respect those who differ from you. This might be most important, I think, right now. Each of these are equally important, really, but I see a great need for the body of Christ to step up and lead in a culture of incredible divisiveness that we as followers of Christ would be different that we would love and respect those who differ from us. This is the minimum for those who are called to Christ Jesus as Lord, that we would love and respect our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow worshipers, our fellow life group members who are different than us. And we'll have those everywhere we go. But our responsibility, our choice is to say, I'm going to be different in the way I live out my faith than the way the world lives out its beliefs. I love the way Ed Stetzer put it recently. He's the chair of church, mission, and evangelism at the Billy Graham Center. And he said wisely, after this election and for all eternity, you are going to be in the same family of God that you are right now. Some differed with you politically, but are still connected to you spiritually. Some differed with you politically, but are still connected to you spiritually, and will be after this election is over. Treat one another accordingly. Wow. What a good call for us. So perhaps, yeah, you would consider those five. We'll put those up on the screen again here real quick. If you want to take a photograph of those, if you missed any of them, you can take a quick shot of those. But I think this is how we would be biblically informed as we uh, proceed across these next nine days and thereafter as well. Let's take a moment and pray for our nation as we uh, look forward to that election and also as we prepare ourselves for this morning's message. Would you join me? Father, we are grateful. We are so very grateful to live in this land. We are so very thankful that we get a part of playing in this republic. That ultimately, according to our founding documents, 
we get say-so. We have this republic. This is a government for the people and by the people. And so, Lord, we ask for your leadership as a church family, online, in the venue, and here in the auditorium. Would you lead us even as we move toward this election day? We pray, God, that you would help us to be different as followers of Christ, that our very first identity, what we put our stand on, is that we are followers of Christ and we treat people accordingly. Would you please help us to be different that way? We ask, Lord, for goodness to prevail in our nation, for an increasing growth in justice and righteousness, for evil to be diminished and for goodness to prevail. We even would be so bold as to ask for revival. Father, would you do what you alone can do? And we recognize that if that were to happen, it would begin with the family of God. And so, Father, to the extent that we need to repent of ways that we have failed to follow your will, we do so. We humble ourselves and we pray and we turn from our wicked ways and we ask in the mighty name of Jesus that you would heal us and heal this land and you would be our number one once again. Father, we're thankful now for an opportunity to turn to this new message series, The Good Life. We ask humbly that you would give us open ears, open mind to your word, that your word would form us this morning. We want your will alone. Please teach us today, we ask by faith, through our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, and God's people say, amen, amen. Well, you might open to uh, Matthew 28 and put your finger on that, and also Galatians 3 will be in those two passages, some today. We'll be in a number of different passages, but those are two that we're going to really mark up, Matthew 28 and Galatians 3. Uh, whether you're using a physical Bible or a digital Bible is fine. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one as our gift to you, there's Bibles out of the information table. We'd be happy to give that to you as a gift from us. If you're a newcomer or regular here today, we're so thankful though, that you're with us. Young people are leaving the church today in droves. Depending on the study that you read, consistently, 60 to 80% of conservative, Protestant, and Catholic youth are leaving the church when they graduate from high school. It's not mostly dependent on them going to college. It seems to be irrespective of what they do after high school. Whether it be going to college or going into the workplace or taking a gap year, depending on the study, 60 to 80% of young people today are leaving the church after high school. Sometimes it's because they found the church to be hypocritical. Other times it's because they found the church to be judgmental. Other times they found the church was not a safe place to ask their very real and legitimate questions, which all of us had at one day or another. But I have found, probably more than any of those, young people are leaving the church today simply because they have not found the church to be captivating enough. It hasn't captured their affections. Interestingly, even amongst those who choose to stay in the church, many of them are bored stiff as they stay. There was a book written back in 2005 which captured this well. It had the title, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And what you see on there is a picture of a man in a tie sleeping on a pew. 
These are two reasons why we don't allow pews or ties in this room. <laughs> or boring preachers either. But, but th this book struck a nerve. Like, I mean, books are a lot like movies. They have a quick swell and then they're down. And you never hear about them again. This book was found across churches for years to come, translated into multiple languages, sold 125,000 copies from a first-time author. Why? Because it struck a nerve, because people are frequently not captivated by the church. They go to church, but they're not finding the good life there. Here's my goal for this series. It's to present a more captivating portrait of the good life in Jesus Christ that would actually capture our affections for what he would intend for us, that would capture our hearts. That's what we long for. You see, there are these portraits of life, maybe even the good life, that are presented both from the world and from the church. And outside the church, what tends to be presented as portraits of the good life is something like this. The good life has been reduced to things like politics and shiny power trucks and independence and beer commercials and all that they entail and human applause and bumper sticker slogans for just getting by in life. Those are the portraits of the good life as presented by the world. But inside the church, it's not a whole lot better. Many times inside the church, well, what's presented is something like this. It's reduced to quiet times and doctrinal precision and getting saved like a barcode that scans over your back yet leaves you unchanged so you just kind of grin and bear it until eternity comes. And more bumper sticker slogans for getting by through life. And friends, in both cases, those are, woe, those are woefully insufficient compared to what is presented for us by Jesus. Jesus promised, like if you understand, if you read the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus promised something way better than either of those portraits. What Jesus promised were things like this. Freedom from worry. Hello. Wouldn't that be good right now? Freedom from worry. Loving community. Meaningful work. And genuine rest. Radical forgiveness. Peace amidst the storms of life. His strength in our weakness, increasing self-control, enjoyment from living in the kingdom of God as our first place of priority, the kingdom of God here and now, right now, which would lead us to a life in abundance as Jesus said that he came to give to us. And we settle instead for checking Bible study and prayer off a duty list in our day-to-day -day task lists, and then living for the weekend. No, we're invited to more than that. That's not the good life. We are invited to more than that. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it way back in the 1950s, as he said in his wonderful essay, The Weight of Glory, that is absolutely worth your time to, to read, probably 20 pages, but a tremendous essay for 
2020, and it said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Mm. It's not that the good life hasn't been offered. It's that we're far too easily pleased by less wild lovers than God himself. And so if you're new to church here today, if you've been in church for 20, 30, 40 years today, either way, if you're just asking questions spiritually today, you're not sure about what you believe, you have been informed by a portrait of what the good life is, either from the world or from the church, or probably from both. And they're insufficient, and what we want to do in this series is provide a better portrait that would capture us a little bit more. So wherever you are spiritually right now, this series has something for you. What I want to do here though this morning is start off the series by focusing on identity today. The identity that God would give us today, followed by next Sunday talking about our affections. If you want to change your life, it begins by changing your identity. Let me say that again. Any real change in life begins by identity change. What am I focusing myself on? Where am I in-grouping myself with others? Where do I quote-unquote belong or not belong? How do I characterize myself? Real change begins with identity change. And then after that, real change begins with appealing to affections. And one of the reasons that so many people feel bored by the contemporary church is it has a tendency to only appeal to the head and the hands. And I am all for appealing to the head. I am the most overeducated, underintelligent person you'd ever meet. Okay, I'm all for appealing to the head. And I'm all for using the hands in Christian mission. But it's the heart that really drives us. It's passion. It's courage. That's our protein. That's what drives us. And so we have to appeal again a little bit better to the heart than we typically do. So pro tip, come back next week. That's what we'll be focusing on next week. If you're taking notes today, today's a really good day to take notes. We are desperate to define who we are, but we tend to do so through secondary identity markers. Every people group, in every culture, in every historical time, is desperate to define who they are. But they tend to define themselves through secondary identity markers which are too small to encompass our identity. This is a universal. Back at the time of Jesus, people were defined by secondary identity markers like this. Uh, Jew or Gentile dog? Hebrew or half-breed Samaritan? Liberal Sadducee or conservative Pharisee? Tax collector or sinner? Righteous 
or unrighteous. And depending on who was making the definitions, those became either labels of pride or labels of shame. You see this well well with the Apostle Paul as he speaks about his own self-identity before he encountered the resurrected Christ and he went through a conversion and he was identifying himself with secondary markers. Look at Philippians chapter three up on the screen. He talks about some of his secondary identity labels before he encountered Christ. He says this, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons for such confidence, I have far more. He says, these are my resume markers, my identity markers before Christ. I was circumcised on the eighth day, like I did just what the law told me to do. On top of that, I was of the people of Israel, and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. So if you know your Old Testament history, there was kind of a stratified system between different people in Israel. Different tribes were considered better tribes than other tribes. And which one was at the top? The tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul is saying, I was at the very top. I was the one that all the other subgroupings looked up to. Each culture sadly stratifies itself, and that was true in ancient Hebrew culture as well. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the most conservative, um, rule-abiding, legalistic kind of Jew. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So what's he doing there? He's saying, these were my identity markers. I was characterized by pride. That's what it was, pride, right? Pride over all the good things that I had done, over my heritage, over my ethnicity, over my nationality. That's exactly what he's saying. Now today, people are labeled a different way. Today, people are labeled drunks and lackeys, illegals and losers, successes and failures, blacks and whites, backwards Republicans and evil Democrats, farmer or rancher, Ford or Chevy, Apple or Android, and on and on what we could go. But still today, much like way back in Paul's day, those labels tend to be either badges of pride or labels of shame. Positively phrased about oneself, negatively phrased about other people. That really hasn't changed. These are all secondary identity markers. Now friends, what I wanna tell you here is that God incarnated earth. He incarnated your world to give you a more compelling identity than all of those. Part of the reason that Jesus took on flesh and blood is to give you a stronger identity. You know, Jesus took on flesh and blood to take on your sin, to take it to the cross, to die for you. Yes, but not only that. He took on flesh and blood to shout down oppressors and to lift up the oppressed. He took on flesh and blood also to give us a different portrait of what leadership looks like, servant, sacrificial leadership as opposed to dominating, top-down leadership. Jesus did all of that, but also he took on flesh and blood for this reason, 
to give you a more compelling identity that your identity is in what God has done for you, not in proving yourself before others. Your identity is in this fact, I am a child of God, I am not what other people say about me. Jesus embodied flesh and blood and all the pain therein to give us a more compelling identity than clothes or your struggle or your ethnicity, whatever it may be. Look at Matthew chapter 28 here. I'm just gonna mark this up a little bit as we go through it. If you're open there in your Bible, go to Matthew 28. And many of you know this passage already. It's called the Great Commission. Very famous passage, well, within the Gospels. And this is Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. I don't know about you. When I hear Jesus' final words, but before ascending to heaven, I'm taking note of those final words. His final words, but before ascending to heaven, he turns to his disciples and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and know this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We've heard that many, many times, but what I want to point out to you here is he uses this Please forgive me if you're not into English grammar. I'm kind of a grammar nerd. Please forgive me. But this is really, really important biblically. He gives us one um, commanding verb for these three verses. And the commanding verb is this. Make disciples. This is what we are to do. We are to make disciples. And then he gives us two subordinate verbs and the two subordinate verbs are by doing these things you make disciples by doing these two things baptizing and teaching so oops if you were to mock this up it looks like this the commanding verb is make disciples The subordinate verbs are baptizing and teaching. Teach everything that Jesus commanded. Now, teaching, of course, is about information, right? Baptizing is about, what's it about? Did I hear it? It's about identity. Baptism is about identity. So Jesus gives these two to-dos underneath his command to make disciples by, number one, baptizing people, and by, number two, teaching them all that I've commanded. Why would baptism rise to that level? Because identity is central to what you are. When someone was baptized in the ancient world, when they were in the Roman Empire of the day, when they were baptized, they were saying, visibly for all the world to see, I am no longer with Caesar, I'm with Jesus. When they went down into the water, they're saying visibly, I may be a citizen of the Roman Empire here, but ultimately I'm a citizen of heaven. Ultimately I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. In this place I might be a slave, but ultimately I'm a free man in Jesus Christ. In this place, you might call me a loser, but Jesus calls me a winner. 
Okay, it's a change in identity that you all characterize me this way, but I'm going with Jesus, and he speaks deeper to the core of my identity. He says, I am his. You might call me a sinner. God calls me forgiven. Even my family might have rejected me, but God has adopted me into his family. You see, identity is critical to God. So he says, go teach and baptize as you make disciples. Because the core of our being, the way we see ourselves, the way we act, is out of our identity. So here's a more compelling identity. A more compelling identity is this. I am a beloved child of God, and I will triumph with Christ. Would you say that out loud with me together, both here in the auditorium and in the venue? You can say it out loud online too. My identity is this. I am a beloved child of God, and I will triumph with Christ. You believe that's your identity? That's the core of who you are. It's not secondary things. That's way more compelling than Nike or Levi's. You know what I'm saying? It's way more compelling than Android or iPhone. It's more compelling than Huskers. It's way more compelling than Hawkeyes. Okay, okay, that was an attempted joke. Okay, you guys didn't? All right. Let let me give you an example of what a huge deal this is. I had a friend a number of years ago named Seth. And Seth was adopted when he was two or three years old. And he struggled with that off and on across his adolescence. Why was I given up by my parents? And eventually he came to make peace with that. But before making peace with that, he was constantly fighting to prove himself. Prove that he belonged. Prove that he was good. Prove that he was good enough for his parents. To prove that he shouldn't be dropped. That that, that was his fear. And so he constantly was seeking to prove himself through athletics or different endeavors to get people's attention, and on and on. And eventually, he came to realize that his parents really, really loved him, and he made peace with that, and he fell deeply in love with his parents, so grateful for them, and he realized, my parents loved me deeply, and also they chose to adopt me, and they developed an incredibly beautiful relationship. And then sometime thereafter, he embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior, I love listening to Seth's testimony. Seth is a pastor now, and I've heard his testimony on two or three different occasions, and he always begins his testimony well with this. I am twice loved, and I am twice adopted. I was adopted by my parents, but even more than that, I am adopted by God. I am a child of God, beloved of God, and that's the centerpiece of my identity. And as he got that into him, his insecurity fizzled. Because he realized he's able to stand on that. For all of us, at one time, our identity was mostly based on what we do, how we prove ourselves to others, how we failed, what groups we are a part of. But now our identity is based on what God has perfectly done on our behalf. This is what Romans 8 says. This is what we sing about here regularly. We're no longer slaves to fear because we are beloved children of God. The spirit you received brought brought about your adoption to sonship, Romans 8 says. Adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we're heirs. 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, we are children of God and future victors with Christ. We share in his suffering today, but one day you'll share in his glory. You know that? You're victors with Christ. You will share in his glory. And you're his children that have been adopted into his family such that we say, Abba, Father, you are my daddy. I trust in you. And the more we live out of that, the more we live in Jesus and out of that as our core identity, the more we will display the most beautiful fruit of the Spirit. Like, we wonder sometimes, why don't I have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? It's oftentimes because we're not living out of our true identity in Christ. What we're made to live out of this every day. What we're made to get all of our sense of life and value and purpose out of this, not out of secondary lovers that aren't worth near what this is worth to us. Now, that's not to say that secondary identities don't matter. I'm not saying that at all. We all do have some secondary identities. You do any job 50 hours a week for 40 or 50 years, that becomes part of you. It's in your bones. It becomes part of your identity. It becomes a cultural and individual marker, and that's okay. Like, this is why you see farmers, you get to know farmers, they have this wonderful connection with the land. And, you know, incredible work ethic and a belief in what they do. And that's a wonderful secondary identity. It's part of their marker. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it becomes a problem when it becomes the primary identity. You, you see this in many different instances today. It's in, like another secondary identity is where we come from. We all come from somewhere. And I don't know about you. You like to stick up from wherever you come from, right? Right? Like, sometimes people like to insult where I come from. I'm going to stick up for where I came from because it's part of my bones. Just like you, right? Um, there's this town in Colorado called No Name, Colorado. If you came from No Name, you're going to stick up for No Name. Even though that's the worst name for a town, right? You're still going to stick up for it because it's part of your identity. This is part of the reason that certain groups of people have such a passion toward their identity, it's because collectively they've endured much pain and suffering over the course of generations. And that becomes culturally an identity marker for them moving forward. You see this in beautiful ways with the Jewish community, for example. Collective suffering over many generations, and that can't be shredded. It can't just be shed. But it shouldn't become the primary identity marker either. That's what I'm saying. The problem arises when secondary identity markers become our primary identity markers. Then we begin to think more about elephants and donkeys than our identity in the blood of the lamb. Oh, I heard one amen. That was a good one to say amen. We should think more about identity in the lamb than we ever think about elephants or donkeys. Or we can start to think about our sexuality as our primary identity. Come on. Come on. Like, okay, that's a part of life, but it's a small part of life, right? That's a small part. How could that be big enough to encompass something as important as our whole identity? That's too small. It's insufficient. Or the color of my skin or the kind of truck I drive. We are called to something higher than those cultural markers, 
Look at Galatians 3 here to show just one more example. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here again is the Apostle Paul seeking to unite the church in Galatia, and he's saying this, this is who you are in Christ Jesus. If you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and your your King, you are children of God. So that is your primary identity. That's number one. That's where you start. That's where you get your hope from. That's your primary identity. You've been baptized into Christ. That's your primary identity. But then he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I tell you what, this is, this is the medicine for what ails our culture today. He's saying, like, these things matter. You're still going to have these things. You're still either Jew or Gentile. There he's speaking to ethnicity. You're still your ethnicity, and that's okay. That's a secondary marker. Here he's speaking to economics. You have an economic position, okay? Slavery then was different than American chattel slavery. Slavery back then was a position of economics, okay? So you may be in bond service as a slave or you may be free. You're in a different economic position. Those are still secondary identity markers, but they're not your primary identity marker. Even gender, as important as gender is, this is not your primary identity marker. Your primary identity marker is this. You are a child of God, baptized into Christ. You are one in Christ. This is your primary identity. These are all secondary identities. And friends, our job is to keep first things first, right? And to get our sense of love, our sense of hope, our sense of life, our sense of purpose out of what God says about us, not out of what the world says about us. What I want my kids to think of when they think of themselves is Christian, follower of Christ, baptized by Jesus, beloved child of God, future victor with Christ. I, I want them to think of that way before they would think about Boykin. Okay, Boykin matters. Christian matters way more. Every marker falls in comparison to this one. And so what we want to do here in this series, and I'll wrap up here, what we want to do in this series is each and every week as we go through the good life, we want to give a simple practice that we can do over the course of the next week to come that would reform us toward the good life that we have in Jesus. And the practice for this coming week is this. I wanna invite you to meditate and pray over one choice passage per day, seven times per day, over the next seven days. And you choose one choice passage that could be any of these that you see up on the screen, you can take a photo of those, or some other choice passage that would be related to identity. Because the simple truth is, we become more and more like whatever we behold. 
And so if we behold Jesus more and more, we'll become more and more like Jesus. We will enjoy his good life more and more. But if we behold CNN or Fox News more and more, we'll become more like them. It's just a simple fact. You become more like, well, whatever you behold. And so what I'm doing here, what I typically do, oh, that's the mask pocket. Here's my note card pocket. I usually have note cards with me. And I just write on a note card, here's John 7, 37 through 38, and this is a passage that I'm dwelling on seven times a day for the next seven days. I pull it out of my pocket, I look at it, I meditate on it, I pray it. I ask God to make it true for me. And this changes my mind. And we all need our minds changed on a regular basis to be realigned to what God says about us. And so you choose one of those. In addition to that, every day this week at noon, I'll do a quick five-minute devotional on this, talking about true identity out of one of these passages, both on Facebook and at carneyefree.com, because it's this important. It's this important that we would be solid in our central identity. True change comes from identity change. You change your identity to align with what Jesus wants for you. And then you're stepping toward the good life. Here's my question for you. In all honesty right now, this is a tough question. In all honesty right now, is your identity formed more by the culture or by what the gospel says about you? Won't you sit on that? Seriously consider that. Because if our identity is formed by what the gospel says about us, then it affects the way we speak. It affects the way we act. It affects the way we think of others. It affects the way we love. It affects our emotional response to difficult situations. It affects our trajectory toward the good life that Jesus promises for us. He actually said, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. And he means it. He wants that for us. That we would center ourselves in this. We are beloved sons and daughters of God, ultimately victors with Christ who remains on the throne. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that we can center ourselves on what you say about us, not on cultural markers, not on the things that we've done right or the things that we've done wrong. None of that ultimately defines us. We are who you say we are. And Father, we ask that this week we would live more and more out of that truth, that we are who you say we are, and we would speak that way to others. We would look at others that way, out of the love and out of the affection and out of the holiness of Jesus for us, so we would extend your grace to other people. God, we recognize that if we want to change, it begins here. If we want the good life, it begins with how you would define the good life, not with how our culture defines the good life. And so, Father, please help us. We ask for your help this week as we endeavor upon these assignments. We want our minds to be formed by you. May it be in Christ's name. Amen.